If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we started going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians together. It's a short book, only a few pages in your Bible, but there could hardly be a better short summary of what we are to believe and to do as Christians. The first part of the book, amazingly, the first three chapters, only has one command, to remember what you were before Christ saved you. It is not a list of things for us to do. It's what we are to believe. It's about what God has done. The second half, though, is full of of teaching on the Christian life, what we are to do in response. This order is so important because God is the one who takes the initiative in our salvation as he does in all things. We do not obey God so that he will save us. We obey God in response to his saving work. If it wasn't for his saving work, we wouldn't be able to obey at all. Or it wouldn't be grace. It would be salvation by works. But we, brothers and sisters, are not saved by efforts. If you go to heaven, you'll see many people there. None of them, none of them were saved by their works. All of them were saved by grace. The gospel is given to us while we couldn't do anything to please God, while we were yet his enemies. God came and did everything himself. When he saw there was no man, his own arm brought salvation. No, he saves us and we're saved. He changes us, we're transformed. If we trust Christ for salvation, there's no more salvation to be earned. It's finished. So our work is not to earn salvation. It is done out of gratitude for it. That's the order we'll see in Paul's teaching over and over again. Here in Ephesians this morning, we're looking at Paul's response to this grace. This long sentence, 202 words long from verse 3 through 14, what I'm about to read rejoicing and praising God for what he has done for us and what his great plan is for us. Let me pray before we read. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see this great plan that you have made manifest in Christ Jesus to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth, and help us to see more clearly how great your love is that you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the, salva- the, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. That is a long sentence, all-encompassing. And it is a wonderful summary of God's plan for us in and of itself. Paul begins with praising God in verse 3, this title almost of the whole sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God who has blessed us. Our blessing is in response to that. We don't give him things. We praise him for the things he's given. We receive it. We accept his way of salvation. We rejoice in it. We act towards one another in response to it. And then he, as soon as he says this, Paul begins with this, this waterfall of praise, as it were, cascading from his pen, stretching from eternity past to eternity future. Looking back at what God has done, in the first few verses we see the focus on what God the Father has done in electing us, in predestining us to adoption. And then it transitions so seamlessly to Christ's work in the what we enjoy in the present. In him you have been redeemed. The forgiveness of sins, you've been redeemed by his blood. Talking about Christ now. And then in him also there has been this manifestation of God's plan, a revelation. And then finally, we, we move to the future, looking at how God has sealed us in the present with the promised Holy Spirit. And that implies this preserving of us until we acquire possession of the inheritance that we are given as sons, which was the whole point our predestination in the very beginning. And so we have this election, predestination, redemption, revelation, preservation. As Paul moves through, and it goes from past to future, it moves from Father to Son to Holy Spirit. 
But the, the transition, as I said, was so seamless. We can't really break it up and say, this is G- the Father section, this is Jesus section, this is the Holy Spirit section, because everything that God has done outside of himself, in every work, he is undivided. The Trinity is involved in everything in your salvation. So when God elected you before the foundation of the world, he chose you in Christ, it says. You are predestined through Christ, you know, to adoption for, you're predestined for adoption to himself through Christ. You were redeemed through Christ. That was God sending his son. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so there is a person of the Trinity who is perhaps uh, most active. I don't know the right word to say as this is a mystery, but uh, who's accomplishing something, but it is always Trinitarian from your election to your sealing, your preservation, the manifestation of God's plan in Christ. We see that Paul just flows out of his pen. I wonder if you, if you ever made any typos when you wrote this. I had to go back. How in the world he could come up with such a sentence if his spirit wasn't guiding his pen? In prison, I might remind you. As he thinks about God's blessing in the midst of all this, And that reminds me that all of our sufferings fit into this plan somewhere. But it's just a blip. It's just a blip. This sentence goes from eternity past to eternity future. And yes, I know we suffer. I know we stumble. I know there's hardships. But it's a drop of suffering in it eternal waterfall of God's love that God has brought us into in Christ. It wasn't like that at the beginning. It won't be like that in the future and for eternity. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, J.I. Packer said, if you could summarize the gospel In three words, he would choose these three words. Adoption through propitiation. I'm not sure I would use the same three words because few people know what propitiation means. But God, it has to do with God doing away with God's wrath at the cross. And and God's being able to be favorable to us, that we might be brought near to him. Not just brought near, not just forgiven, but adopted. Adopted. And so if I focus on the verbs in this long sentence, you see the election, predestination, redemption, you know, sealing. Um, but if you focus on the goal of those verbs, you see something much more amazing, I think that we were elected to holiness, that you might be holy and blameless. Not just holy and blameless, but elected so that you might be holy and blameless before him. That God, God's plan was to bring you into his presence. And how could you stand in his presence 
if you were not holy and blameless? You couldn't. You would be blown away. You remember Isaiah? Isaiah 6 just saw a glimpse of God on his throne. And he was undone because he was a man of sinful lips. He lived among a people of sinful lips. But God wants us to be there and be unashamed, to stand tall in his presence as his children, holy and blameless before him. He predestined us not just uh, to be saved, He predestined us for adoption, it says. An adoption through Christ that, isn't it amazing? The Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. God is not ashamed to call us his children. So he has predestined us again to bring us to himself. That's the adoption part that Packer is talking about. I'm not sure if he had this verse in mind, this sentence in mind, but there we see the adoption at the beginning. God is going to bring us to himself and not just bring us into his presence, but lavish us with blessings, lavish us with this inheritance. If we are, if we are in Christ, then we are children of, of God and heirs We have this wonderful inheritance that is implied here at the beginning when we are adopted. But it comes up again. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, there's the word again. And again, verse 14, talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So he keeps speaking of this inheritance, that future, this blessing that's laid up. And so you see, this list of blessings is not the whole list. This is just the beginning. This is just the door to the blessings, just the borders of a vast continent of love and blessing that God has awaiting his people. It's just the way in, the way that God has saved us and preserved us that we might come to himself. It's in his presence that we have those eternal blessings. Psalm 16, I love, I love these verses. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are blessings forevermore. Those are the eternal blessings. God's presence himself. This is, this is what God chose you for. This is why you exist. God called you to glorify and enjoy him, to be able to be holy and blameless in his presence. But that adoption comes through propitiation. And that's, that's what I'm really going to be talking about today is how we get to this point. Because for, for us to be holy and blameless before him, there has to be some vast change in ourselves and a doing away with all our sin. Somehow we have to be separated from our sin 
our sin cast into the ocean. And God puts up a sign that says, no fishing. You know, it's gone forever. And yet we are somehow preserved from it, not judged for it, and changed that we might be able to enjoy him. We, we have very little ability to enjoy him even now. You know, otherwise, everybody would be here lining up at the door at three in the morning, waiting to get in, longing for this day, longing far more than we do to be in God's presence. Prayer would be a joy, never a chore, to be with God. Sometimes I hear people say, if God knows what we're going to ask, why do we pray? It's like, do you have a problem with being in God's presence? Isn't that amazing in and of itself? But I do. It's hard because we need to be changed vastly to even enjoy God the right way. Now, in our second section that we're looking at, it's redemption through his blood, verse 7 on through 14. That's what I want to particularly look at this morning. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is the great work that the Lord Jesus was sent to do in order to bring us back to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this redemption is a wonderful thing. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. But this also implies what you were before he came to save you. Redemption is a word that reminds us of what we see in Exodus. that When the people of Israel were slaves and God came in and redeemed them. He bought them out of slavery. That you, brothers and sisters, were slaves. You'll see it in chapter 2. If you look forward, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world and according to, to Satan, who's ruling over this wicked, wicked part of the world and driving, driving people onto hell who go willingly in their rebellion against God. So God has to save us from slavery to Satan and slavery to sin. For whoever serves sin, whoever sins and lives in sins is the slave of sin. God has brought us out not to be independent, but to serve him, to be his slaves, which that's where the fullness of joy is. So there is this redemption, and it says something that's very humbling about you. You didn't buy your way out. That God had to buy you out. At what cost? Redemption through his blood. What does that imply? It's not just a little bit of blood. It means his whole life. It means that Jesus had to give his life for you. And he did. And it was not taken from him. If he was dragged, kicking and screaming to the cross, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't have been his will. But he went, here I am. You know, and he says, if I'm the one you seek, let these go free. 
That's what he does for us. He comes and he willingly gives up his life. He is the high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice that you might be redeemed. And he buys you with his blood. And with that redemption comes the forgiveness of sins. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Remember? But with his blood, your sins are completely washed away. There's nothing you can add to it. There's no more perfect sacrifice that could ever be made. Jesus had to come and live a perfect life. He had to keep all the commandments. And in addition to that, he had to keep this this commandment that's given to him as the Messiah to lay down his life. And he does it willingly for you, for the joy set before him, not just the glory that he gets, but for the train of train of people he keeps captive in his wake, bringing us, bringing us to heaven with him. This is a great praise that Paul never gets, gets over. He knows of all people that he doesn't deserve it. He was on the road to kill God's people when Jesus stepped in the way and didn't destroy him. Didn't destroy him, but made him a missionary to show his perfect patience so that Paul could say, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost so that Christ could demonstrate his perfect patience in me. And if he's done that for Paul, then he can do that for the Ephesians. He's done that for you, brothers and sisters. Although we, I don't think any of you, have gone around arresting and killing Christians. We can say with the same spirit of Paul that we are, we are the worst of sinners. And get the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me as if I was the only one alive. So we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then it says, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Sometimes Paul's phrases are a little bit hard to follow, especially in this sentence, but according to the riches of his grace, I've heard this explained like this, the difference between according to his riches and of his riches. I think it was Hendrickson who mentioned this. I don't remember. But if there was two rich men and one guy gives a little bit, he has given of his riches. If someone else comes very wealthy and he gives just an, just an enormous, incalculable amount, he has given according to his riches. He has given richly. That's what God has done for us. He didn't give you just a little grace. He gave according to his riches of grace, which he, which Paul says he lavished upon us. Not just, not just enough to get you into heaven, 
but enough to give you, to wipe away everything. That you're the poorest person in the world one moment, and the next moment you're richer than Elon Musk. With this eternal treasure that's poured out on you. Fullness of joy forever. I don't even know what that's like because we get bored pretty fast. Even the things that you love the most. I know some of you love roller coasters. But you would get bored with it pretty quick if you stayed on it for too long. You know, there's, there's nothing in this world actually that could keep our attention forever. Our hearts were made for something greater than that. They were made for God. And yet in God, there is this infinite fullness that your knowledge, your love, your delight in God could expand at an exponential rate forever. It's mind blowing. And he would, he would never be exhausted. So he has lavished upon us the riches of his grace, according, according to his riches, brought us out of sin, out of slavery, adopted us, made us his children. Doesn't just say, you're, you're forgiven, you may go, but you are mine. You may come to me. I am your God. You are my particular possession. In addition to all this forgiveness and this redemption, we have this manifestation, this revelation that God has given us. We sometimes overlook it or take it for granted. But what if God created you and put you in this world and didn't tell you why you were here? He never spoke. Just let us go about our business, wondering what is the purpose of life? Am I doing something? Am I living for the wrong thing? Like, what happens after I die? You know, how lost we would be. And yet, God has revealed to us all the questions that the philosophers have argued about for thousands of years and are still no close to answering. And they can't agree with each other. The most important things, where did we come from? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? You know, what is virtue? What's happiness? What's coming in the future? Things that happen before the foundation of the world, we know. Things that will happen in the future, we know. We don't know everything. We know the most important things. God has revealed it. Not only that, he has manifested himself and his plan in his son. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Bible came to us in not in a every year God gives us another chapter, another chapter, another chapter, but it comes in waves, waves that accompany redemption. So for 2,000 years or longer, for longer, we didn't have the Bible. And then God brings his people out of Egypt and gives them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, almost all at once, explaining redemption, accompanying redemption. 
And then again, it comes in waves through time. And then the biggest wave is the New Testament, which is being poured out even as Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, explaining, applying, teaching us from Christ's redemptive work. So this manifestation uh, of God's plan and who he is um, has comes through Christ and through his work. You know, we see that God is a trinity in the Old Testament, but it's much harder to to see God as Father in the Old Testament. God is mentioned as Father a few times in the Old Testament, but there are more times in the Sermon on the Mount of God being mentioned as the Father than the whole Old Testament combined. Just a couple pages of your Bible uh, than all before. So God revealed himself much more to us in Christ. He revealed, your creator revealed himself to you. He revealed his plan to you in Christ. And this plan, I'll come back to it a little bit later, this plan shows us the center of everything. It's that lodestone, this this north pole that we can orient our whole life around and figure out what is the center, what is the most important thing. And although these blessings come one after another and they're all for us and we're enjoying it, you, you also notice as you read it, it's actually not about you. It didn't start with you. You're not the end of it. You're not the one who does it. And you're not the center of it. It, it comes in this verse with this phrase that Paul uses that's really not paralleled anywhere else in the ancient Greek world. This in him, into him is the word. There's no parallel for that. Paul has to make up a way to say it, that we are in Christ. And so that God's plan was not just that we would be in Christ, but that all things, in the fullness of time, all things, things in heaven and things on earth, would be united in him. A plan for the fullness of the ages. And that's, that's the wonderful thing about this. We enjoy these blessings, not independently of Christ. God cannot give us like a bag of grace. Here's five pounds of grace. I just had a pounding yesterday. God doesn't do that and say, here's flour or chocolate chips. I have a lot of chocolate chips now, right now. He gives us himself. He gives us Christ. And in Christ is the fullness of every blessing. He comes and he stays. And um, all... We are, that's how Paul even thinks of himself as in him. You know, the, the phrase for Christians, the term Christians is actually rarely used in the Bible. And some of the times it's used, it's kind of a derogatory sense, or it's intended that way, it seems. The, the phrase that's most frequently used for being saved is this one, in Christ. Paul will say, this man was in Christ before me. 
You know? And so this is the theme that runs through the whole, this whole long sentence. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In him you were chosen. Predestined in him. Redeemed through his blood. We have an inheritance in him. Verse 11. Which let me move, move to that now. That we have this inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That, that reminds us so much of Romans 8, doesn't it? That God predestined us so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And yet, he causes all things to work for our good. Everything along the way, which is hard to believe sometimes when bad things happen. But he assures us that they do come out for our good. Because here he has, he has, he has paid for us at a great cost. He has given his son and there's nothing greater that he can give than this. And so he will not lose you who he purchased at such a great cost. It is, it is not possible, not comprehensible that God would buy you, that he would make his son suffer for you and then lose you. It cannot happen. So God, he causes all things to work according to the counsel of his will. And that will is a very good will. It's always good towards us that God would choose us, bring us to himself. Now, I think he's making a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles here in verse 12. He says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in him, you also, you Gentiles, most of you are probably Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. In him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we come into it, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this, the Holy Spirit doesn't say very much about the Holy Spirit here. It says, one, that he's holy. Another that he's promised, that he was promised in the Old Testament. We were reading it today in Sunday school. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that a new covenant was coming. Remember when Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood? And along with that, along with his work, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit in heaven, poured out that spirit upon the church, Acts 2.33. And so, this is the promised Holy Spirit that Peter preached about in, in Joel and else. The Holy Spirit who would wash us, who would change us. And so it was Jesus in his, the day on which he was betrayed, the night on which he was betrayed, he wanted to comfort his people with this upper room discourse in John 14 through 16. And he speaks the most profound theology of the Trinity, which we might not think is 
the best way to comfort people until you realize, yes, it is. You realize that as Jesus goes away, he comes back to us by his spirit. That Jesus is not just going away, he's not just dying, he's going to his father's house to prepare a place for us. So he goes to heaven to prepare a place for us, and he sent the Holy Spirit to prepare a place for himself in us. He prepares a place for us. The Holy Spirit prepares us for the place. So the Holy Spirit comes down, and we who love God, says the Father and Jesus, Jesus will manifest himself to us and make their abode with us. It's a wonderful thing, this sealing of the Spirit. It's not something the Spirit does. The Spirit is the seal. He is the guarantee. And this word in the Greek is an interesting one. It's like this down payment. In the modern Greek, the word, the same word is used for an engagement ring. The guarantee. Now, it would be error of me to say this is the modern Greek meaning. Therefore, that's the meaning it was there. But I'm just trying to give you kind of an idea, the scope of this word, this promise of the completion of it. It's like a down payment, and God never defaults on his loans. It's the first fruits. So God doesn't just save us and leave us wallowing in sin. He saves us and changes us from within so that you who want to be in heaven one day begin to experience heaven now in your hearts. And that is the testimony that we belong to him, that we are part of him. And then this, the Holy Spirit holds us fast, preserves us, keeps us from sin, makes us more and more like Christ. He unites us to those blessings that we have in Christ until we acquire possession of it. And so this, this whole sentence ends with us looking forward to more blessings. It reminds me a lot of 1 Peter uh, 1. I didn't write it down, so I might quote it wrong, but that, that it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected now by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. In this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been troubled by various trials. It's the same thing. We're called, given this inheritance through Christ's blood, and he preserves us today that we might, we might acquire it one day. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is good news. God loved you before the foundation of the world. He saved you at great cost. He made known his ways to you. He brought himself to you. He preserves you. He won't let you go. And he has a wonderful plan in heaven awaiting you. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. 
that we might worship him. To the praise of his glory is grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Three times it's mentioned in this passage. We see that all this blessing, as I said before, wasn't really about you. It was about Christ. It was God's design to, in this way, draw attention to Christ, to glorify his son. This was his great plan, that in all things, Jesus would be preeminent. That Jesus Christ would be the firstborn, Romans 8, among many brethren. That his plan for the fullness of time would be to unite all things in heaven and earth in him. Now, if you went to Ephesus back in the day, you would be amazed at the temple of Artemis. More than a football field and a half long. 450 feet long. Almost, it was like 200-something feet wide. This gigantic building with a roof supported by an absolute forest of marble pillars, more than a hundred of them. One of the guys, early Greek writers who went to many of the ancient wonders of the world said this one was the most impressive. And how small it must have felt to be a Christian in Ephesus in those days. And there were other temples too, but Paul shows us something beyond it. This temple is just a little building on God's earth. And all of it was made for Christ so that Jesus could say at the end, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That Jesus is the one in whom heaven and earth meet. He is the God-man. He is the heavenly man from heaven, but he's also from earth too, from Mary. He is the creator and he is created as well. His body is created. And he is the one, the mediator between God and man so that all of our attention comes to this point. That is how we know God. That is how God blesses us through Christ. Our worship comes through him. He is the center of all things. And so I have to tell you, if he is not the center of your life, then you are a strange anomaly in this universe, in rebellion. And it will get fixed sooner or later. The time to do it is now. It's to come to him in submission as the king. For no one will win who comes to, who, who fights against him. As I said earlier, Psalm 2, God said, ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. And then it says, kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. We will either be built upon Christ or crushed beyond, beyond repair. I beg you, if you do not know him, this is what you were made for, to know him, to worship him, to be 
brought back to the God who made you, who loved you, who did everything that was necessary for you to be brought back. Brothers and sisters, this is the center of the universe. Is it the center of your life too? Make it the center. Make him the center. In him there is fullness of joy. In him there is all the blessings. You were made by him and for him. We must come to him. To him be the praise and glory forever and ever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. Draw us to him. Build us up in him. Make us as a church united in him and built to a mature man that we might enjoy you, worship you, praise you as we ought, that we might be delivered from our sin and preserved for this inheritance that you have laid up for us. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us each week, this week, each day this week, and help us to never forget to keep our eyes in heaven and to fix our minds there where Christ is, Christ who is our life. And Lord, help us to say with Paul that we regard everything else as rubbish in comparison with knowing him and being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but his, which you've given us in him. We pray all this in his name. Amen.